Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And uh, today with me, uh, a guest who's written a really fascinating book, uh, but also a fascinating life as well. So let's meet Sam Lacrosse. Without further ado, so I'm guessing with a name like that, Sam, you're sitting in the middle of France somewhere, sipping a a beautiful um, coffee, drinking, you know, eating croissant, smoking a galois, Sam Lacrosse. So it seems exotic. Where are you? Well, that is uh, that is the romanticized version of what I wish my life would be like. But unfortunately, that is not uh, the case with me or my last name. So uh, first of all, Russell, thank you for having me on. I really, really appreciate your time and your due diligence and your kind words about my, about me and about my book and everything. So a lot of people think that the last name is French, and I thought it was French for a while, but it's actually Italian. So my last name oh. was, yeah, yeah. So my last name was, uh, obviously, it's my great-grandfather's name. He was Italian. His last name, when his family's last name, rather, when he lived in Italy, was Lacruci. So when he moved over to, it was almost like kind of like a, if you've seen Godfather Part Two, where Vito yes. Corleone walks through Ellis Island and they say, you know, okay, you're from this place. So you now are named after this place. It wasn't the exact same thing, but they basically told my great grandfather when he went through Ellis Island, when he came over to America, he's like, the last name is too Italian. We need to be more American. So that's how the cross happened. Oh, so wow. it's not French, even though it sounds French, but yes. it's actually Italian in, in Genesis, which is kind of cool. That's brilliant. I thought he'd come through Ellis Island and ask him what his favorite sport was. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I get that a lot too. Believe me. So oh, yeah, and I never, I never have played lacrosse. I never picked up a lacrosse no. ball in my life, yeah. unfortunately. It, and having watched it and seen it, it's actually very mystifying. And yeah. one of those sports, I, I guess, until you know, it seems quite pointless. It's a bit like, you know, show jumping and dressage. But I mean, you know, uh, not that I know anything about those sports. And I know that the person right. who, who people that listen to this will be automatically now gunning for me. So uh, this will be, be cut out, I'm sure. <laughs> so anyway, Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am, I guess I should have answered the first part of your question. So I am broadcasting live from Austin, Texas this morning. So I've lived in Austin for a little over a year, so about a year and two months. But I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, which oh. I don't know if, you're, I don't know if you're, your audience is primarily British, but it's basically like a state of Ohio kind of top left corner or top right corner excuse me so about 10 minutes away from the great lakes from lake erie specifically oh wow and, yeah and so you know grew up kind of on a lake beach it's not like a beach beach like your zoom background is right now but it's a lake beach and so i lived there the first 18 years of my life and then went about two hours down south to go to university at ohio state and so did that for about four years and then took a entry-level job out in boston 
for a year. And then I moved down to Texas in the summer or May of 2019 or 2021, excuse me. So, and I've been down in Austin for about, like I said, a year and two months. And so 24 years old and, you know, kind of just living the life down here. So brilliant. And, and I love your uh, chutzpah here because actually you've written a, um, a book about telling us how to live our lives and everything. And, and, and your sort of starting thing is, you know, nothing. And uh, you're very, it's a really brilliant idea. So tell me, so the book's called uh, Value Economics, The Study of Identity. And I was very interested in that because I thought, oh, interesting, because I'm very interested generally in the idea of identity for all sorts of different reasons. But um, let's let's start from the very beginning and tell us the motivation for why you wrote it. Yeah, sure. So I think the good and the appropriate place to start rather would be in the summer of 2019. I was doing an internship actually in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the time, and I was back I believe maybe around the 4th of July or around Labor Day, like a holiday sort of thing before I went to school. So I guess not Labor Day, it'd be too late, but somewhere in the summer. And I was having a conversation with my mom and my parents are very, very intelligent, thankfully. So I can have really, really good conversations with them. And we kind of got into a wide ranging discussion kind of about just belief and kind of what to put your, I would say, energy towards. And so we were talking kind of about, you know, different things going on in culture and all that kind of stuff. And she was talking specifically about Gen Z. I'm, I'm a very old member of Gen Z. I'm not quite a millennial. I'm a very, very old member of Gen Z, which is kind of the low 20s to kind of late teens era is what we're living in now. And so she basically was talking about my generation. And she said, well, you know, you guys really don't believe in anything. And so I was like, well, well that's, that's kind of harsh. But again, like I always want to say like, okay, just because something is harsh, it doesn't mean it's totally false or totally mm. true. So I wanted to kind of discover that more. And so I kind of looked around at what was going on in the world. And I saw that there was a lot of merit to what she said. And I didn't know if she was completely correct or completely not correct. But, you know, I thought that the idea was at least worth exploring in general. And so I thought back to both my time growing up and I thought more specifically about my parents and about my dad's parents, my grandparents. And we kind of grew up in a very, I would say, nuclear family environment. I had. I was fortunate enough to have both parents in the household. My grandparents lived very close. I had aunts and uncles that lived very close. So we were kind of in a very, very tight-knit ecosystem growing up. And the one consistent to that ecosystem was the ethos of values. And more specifically, my father would come home every day that he was home because he traveled a lot for work, but he would come home and say at least one thing every day and like a kind of like a bang the table moment about like values and about stuff like that. And so I knew they were always very, very important growing up, but I didn't really know what they were. Like if you were to ask me to them, it was Mm. kind of so self-evident to me growing up because it was so common around my lifestyle and my family that I really just kind of knew what they were in abstract, but I didn't really know what they were in the specific of definition. And what I've kind of used as a metaphor to explain it. So if I asked you, Russell, like what is, what is a circle at the foundational level? What is a circle? And you would probably, I would imagine, you seem like a very intelligent guy, but I think most people would probably struggle to kind of come up with like, uh, like the geometrical definition of what a circle is because Mm. it's so self-evident that a circle is a circle. That's kind of just what we know it as at this point. And so, you know, it it was kind of like one of those things where it was like, okay, I know what this thing is, but I don't know really why I'm, I can't come up with an answer. And so that was an interesting thing. And so I kind of, you know, was like, okay, what is, what are values? What is a value? And so then I started kind of, you know, thinking about abstract things, the relationship between value and sacrifice. And so I basically came up with the general assumption that said, the more you value something, the more you sacrifice to get that something. And the less you value something, the less you'll probably sacrifice to get that something. And so I was kind of thinking about that relationship in my head and putting that in the back of my head. And so I just kind of stored it there for a while. And I go back to university in the later in the fall. So I think October of 2019, right before COVID happened. 
And I had to take a mandatory economics class in order to graduate school. And so I was inside of, you know, economics and kind of in my economics class, the professor was uh, a very smart guy, very nice guy, but I was kind of, I had senioritis at that point. I was the class of my friends. So I was just kind of chilling in the back, kind of drifting out into space. But we were talking about supply and demand curves, I think was the big, you know, stuff inside of the, inside of the class. And I'm far from an economist, but I was able to kind of parse through like, okay, wait a, wait a second. This is a relationship between two things. That is a relationship between two things. So what if, in order to fully flesh out the problem, I used that model of supply and demand to navigate and try to map out the value and sacrifice curve and try to see how that relationship really intertwined with one another. And okay. I had, yeah. So, so I'm going to jump in because yeah. I'm, I'm sure people who are listening have got about a thousand questions. So, so have I. So um, let's let me leap in and just stop you if I may. So, so sure. you've linked value. So, well, okay. Look, before we get into it, you, you better explain what you have defined as a value, and you better define what sacrifice means because obviously, in order to understand those two variables, um, we better understand more about that. So, go, sure. can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, sure. So, a value in abstract in the most stilled down definition there was, and this is the definition that's in the start of the book, is something either scarce, rare, or hardly able to find. So it's something that is very, very, I would say, hard to come upon in a general sense of what you want to come through as a, as a thing. So like diamonds are valuable because there's not a lot of diamonds in the world. Gold is valuable because there's only a finite amount of gold in the world. So there has to be a, a finite resource element to it because there's only so much of something to go around. Like I think a lot of people like, so for example, if we're going to you know use the very basic term of like what natural resources are, a lot of people don't necessarily value air, even though air is pretty important because there's a lot of air. So we all breathe air. Not a lot of us have you know, a ton of gold we'll, to go by. We'll, we'll know about that when we run out of water. That's one of those classic things, isn't right. it? You, yeah. When you're really right. desperate, you'll pay anything for a pint of water. So, so you're not relating to values in a sort of psychological sense of beliefs and values. You're linking it to the economic uh, assets utilization thing of value in that sense. So I'm kind of doing a little bit of both. So I think I'm talking about belief systems and values and kind of the central things that you hold close as a person in that psychological sense. Yeah. But I needed something to kind of help me explain it and help me work through the problem. And so the way I thought about it was, okay, we have these models that have been used by certain groups of people, whether that's economics or science or something else for a very, very long time. I just gravitated towards economics because I'm not smart enough to do science, frankly, frankly. So it was kind of- Wow, the economics would be, uh, the economists would be pleased that you're saying that. <laughs> well, yeah. So I was, so I kind of gravitated more towards economics. And so I kind of saw that as, you know, a, at least a somewhat more clean through line between the two things. And so I wanted to try to just not come up with just a general thing where I would talk about a fluff piece about why these things are important. I wanted to have some rationale behind kind of mapping out and explaining it to people. And that was the thing that I gravitated towards. So, so when you say when you're talking about a value that you hold close or dear to yourself, which is your, what you've said, it's it's not a psychological description of values, but that doesn't matter because you're coming up with your own. Um, so, mm -hmm. are you saying that some of those values, therefore, are scarce? Yes, yes, I would say they have to be scarce, and because I think, in the sense that you, there's thousands of different values that you can pick from something else that you hold. Like I, a, a lot of people, whether it's the culture you grew up in, the geography of where you grew up in, kind of the family environment you had. A lot of people value a lot of different things. And so my sense of it is that values are a generalized marketplace, if you really want to look at it from a pure economic sense of it. So there's a lot of things you can like technically go into the marketplace and either purchase or gravitate towards. So what I would say is that you have to allocate values that you truly find important, which are based on things like 
your experiences, how you like to, you know, kind of go about interacting with the world, interacting with people, your discipline, your self-awareness, how much you care about these things. Mm -hmm. And you have to take those values that most match up with those requirements and use those as the anchoring point of who you are as a person. Right. And hence the sacrifice, because if these things are important, uh, so important to you, like core beliefs in a sense, then you will have to sacrifice to make sure A, you can live them and B, that they work for you. It'll be work involved. Yeah. Correct. And yeah, I was going to say to your point, there's two versions of that sacrifice kind of involved. You have to sacrifice all the other options of values that you have out in the world to really focus on those values. And you have to sacrifice other things in order to reinforce that value system inside of your life. So for example, if you, if you value being committed to your wife in a marriage, for example, then you can't go out and, you know, sleep with like 10 or 20 different women because that wouldn't be obviously holding up that end of the end of the commitment style of the value that you hold so it's a twofold thing but i believe that kind of is intertwined in that in a bilateral sense if that makes sense yes yes it does make sense um um okay uh so you better explain a little bit about identity because here's that's if you've if you've been contentious before when you've been talking about values and sacrifice you're hitting the mother load of con- contentiousness now so what yeah. do you mean by that Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, to your point, I don't know if we started recording before this, but I I think, you know, I think this was either on or certainly before we started recording, you said you were fascinated with the subject overall of identity. And I think a lot of people are fascinated by the subject of identity now because it's become such a abstracted question for a lot of people to answer in a lot of different ways. And I think there are a lot of ways to answer it. Although I think a lot of people would agree with me that a lot of ways in their opinion are better than others. And so I think what we've seen a lot recently is the subject of group identity and classifying yourself in terms of a group of people, whether it is you are a man, you are a woman, you are a a white person, a black person, Mm -hmm. a Latino person, a gay person, a straight person, or or whichever. And I think that there's merit to having that inside of your identity. Like, I mean, it it would be ignorant to say that I'm not a white person, I'm not a male, I'm not kind of whatever, because I am those things. And everyone is those type of things, and that, that kind of, you know, genetic and biological characteristic of that person. But I think that that sense of looking at people is very, very limited in the sense that if I ask someone on the street, okay, what is a white person? Like if I ask them, what is a white person? And they could give me, I think, two answers on that. They could give the strictly biological definition, like the amount of melanin in their skin. This is what they're composed of biologically. These are their cells. This is all this other kind of stuff. Or they would probably end up characterizing them in some way that's not necessarily fair to that person. Because they're more than just a group identity of some other person. It is a component of who they are, but it's not who they are in totality. Because you can't really define, I would say, other than the purely factual answer of what is a man, what is a gay person, what is a transgender person, what is this, you know, what is anything really at the sense of it? Because it's a component of who you are. And I believe that identity should be composed at the individual level. And I think the way that the identity is formed at the individual value is through what that person finds in their values and from what they find important, which right. is why I think value economics in terms of the study and the implementation of your values is what truly forms an individual person's identity in the most total sense that you can really capture in a person. Understood. Okay. I mean, there's uh, different sort of models based on different psychological bits of thinking, which have values and identity the other way around but that doesn't matter what you're doing is explaining it the trouble is with this subject is we all use the same words to describe different things and this is part of the problem here isn't it so your your proposition as i understand it is what you're saying it's quite simple what you have to do is you have to figure out what you value and then you have to make choices 
based on actually living those values by getting rid of the things that you don't value and living a life which is around the things which you decided are important to you. Correct. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's your central thesis. And and then the way you've marketed this is brilliant because what you're basically saying to people is um, everything else is sort of BS because yeah, um, the self-help industry creates this idea that you're wonderful, you're special, you're, that you can have it all. Um, yeah. You just have to dream it and you'll get it, all that sort of stuff. But you're going against that sort of idea. And, I agree with you totally, by the way, but you are yeah, going okay. against that idea. Yeah, you're, sort of, yeah. you're sort of calling out that that central idea before you start, aren't you? So tell me a bit about why you thought that was a good way to approach it. Yeah, so I think that self-help is warranted in some occasions. And I think there's a lot of good that is being done by a lot of people who do want to genuinely go out and extend a helping hand to someone who is in need of help. And I think that's a very, very good thing, no matter what angle you're coming at it from, if you genuinely want to help a person. But I think that my focus on this was, you know, if you don't know who you are and what you find important, then what good is any help going to do to you if you go in the wrong direction? So the way I'm proposing value economics, and the way I set up is the book is that this is the book that everyone must read before you try to help yourself. Because if you help yourself for the wrong reasons, then I don't think that's helping yourself at all. I think it's actually kind of the opposite matter of fact. And I think so there's a saying- lot of- who Go are ahead. you rather than so basically you're saying you're not helping yourself until you know who you are uh but you're saying that knowing your values helps you understand who you are and your identity but that is from, correct but what you've done so far is it's just a uh, there are just a series of choices made at a certain age which can change because you've actually said these values are based on experience so are you therefore saying that by the time you're 40 all this might have changed so you've had all these great ideas you've lived lift your life around this central tenet you get to 43 or whatever it is and yep. um, you think to yourself, Oh, forget all that. Let's do something else. Cause basically when you're in your age or the early twenties, the values which are finding most important are your parental values. So how does that pan out? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good question. So I think that there, I encourage people to really test their values over time. And so chapter three in the book is called essential diversification. So I basically take the idea of, portfolio theory, which is pioneered by a guy named Harry Markowitz, who wrote a thesis they won the Nobel Prize, I believe, for doing this back in the 1970s. And so he kind of took this idea of you should have a certain allocation of assets and investment portfolio in order to properly basically stomp out all major risk other than the risk of the market. So you have to put a lot of things in to properly diversify yourself throughout the entire time you hold that asset and that investment portfolio. And I kind of advocate for the same thing. So like, let's let's just say, for example, 20 years ago, I think uh, the book that I would say exemplifies this most is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yeah. So Jim Collins wrote this book called Good to Great, about, I think about 20 or 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago at this point, which basically talked about, I believe, 10 great companies, 10 quote unquote great companies at the time and what their management structure was like, kind of what their competitive advantages were and why they succeeded in the market. But I read Good to Great in 2019. And so I read 2019 and I'm reading about companies like Circuit City and Radio Shack and a lot of yeah. people that aren't in business anymore. What's a you radio? Know? You must be asking yourself. Yeah, yeah, right. So I, I, so I think that kind of says that, you know, you need to adapt after a while. And so as your life goes on and as you change, because the reality is human beings change. They're not the same person at point A as they are at point B at the end of their life. And so I would imagine, you know, and I'm again, I'm only 24. So what do I know? But I would imagine like when you go through a a divorce or you have a child or you go through a really rough career transition or your parents start to get older and they start to kind of depend on you more for things that really kind of takes a really, really good grip on your life and kind of has to force you to reorient stuff. Mm. 
So just in the same sense as an investment advisor would be a fool to tell you to hold Circuit City now and buy a ton of Circuit City stock, they would be kind of a fool to say if you had like just, I think having a child is the easiest example. So if you just had a child, you can go out and just have your general hedonistic aspects of going out and partying for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every weekend. That just can't happen anymore. So you have to readjust your values and change with what your current situation is. But they have to be grounded in kind of what you truly do find important to you, which is yes. always that it's a central tenet of everything. Yes. I mean, I, I think um, I think it's interesting because you're saying two different things, aren't you? And it is possible to hold two contrary views at the same time. And I like that. So you're basically saying these things are really important, the self-identification, and they really matter to you. You should live your life around them. But then they're capable of change. So what mm-hmm. you avoid there is the rigidity that you get with some people where they're saying, well, actually, I can't change because I'm wedded to yeah. this specific thing. And what you're actually saying, these are really situational values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say this from the, because every person is their own individual person. They all yeah. kind of hold different things inside of themselves. So I think that there are certain there are um, useful for, you know, there are uses for group identities of people. Like I think there is a very, very big value in their, you know, black people finding commonality with other black people, with Christians finding identity with Christians, and with a lot of people kind of coming around a central tenet of a core part of themselves, but not fully diving in totally where you don't totally skew that portfolio of your values towards dominating your entire value pie chart, because that really isn't good either. And I see, but you see, you're hitting on the point where I mean, I have a massive problem with values. I I have endless arguments on leadership programs about values and such. I really don't buy into the concept at all, because actually, in psychology, beliefs are internal and values are external. Mm -hmm. So the way you're describing it, that makes much more sense. So what you're saying is there are you're calling social values identity in a sense. You're calling Mm -hmm. social values group identity, and and they're all slightly different. it's your own terminology. Describe it the way you want, but um, but I think it's interesting to sometimes um, you know challenge that assertion that the sure. thing is we've we've lost the meaning in words by by um, which is actually what you're saying we've lost the meaning so you're re-identifying where you're redefining them, but the problem is everyone's redefined the same words and so no one knows exactly what anything means anymore. Uh huh. So so one of the things I'm interested in your theory is. Um, this is not on your website, and I'll cut this out if it's not right, but it says in one no, of the reviews ahead. that you had a porn addiction. Yeah. Right, good. And you're okay yeah. to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, already, I already broadcasted it to the world once. I might as well you know, keep talking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, and no, I think this is really yeah. interesting because actually yeah. we know in addiction therapies that what you have to do is you have to effectively give a person a dopamine heist in a different place other than the call addiction. So in other words, you can become addicted to writing or addicted to business, which is seen as sure. a socially acceptable thing by using the dopamine lift that you would get from, with porn, for example. And um, and you seem to be actually advocating that approach. That seems to be the tenet, central tenet of your idea in a way. Or am I simplifying that too much? No, I, I would say that, you know, going back on it, I'm not very proud of it. Looking back on it, I would say, I, I, you know, I think there's a, a saying by uh, Tim Kennedy, who is one of my heroes. And, you know, he was a fought in the UFC. He was, he was a Green Beret for a while, special forces operator that says the two most powerful, in his words, the two most powerful forces in your life are failure and shame. And I believe that to be very, very true in a lot of ways. And so I think that, you know, a lot of ways looking back on it, I lived a very, very shameful existence for a very, very long time because really when I looked at it, you know, kind of everything else, and I can go into another example later, but for my case specifically, my porn addiction and the reasons that why I used that kind of to really, to your point, get that dopamine hit and really fill my life with that kind of a pleasure 
it was good for a while, but afterwards it really started to control my life. Like it got to a point where I was, you know, I stalked my roommate in college's schedule to find out when he'd be out of the room. I would, you know, be watching, you know, I'd be watching it for hours upon hours a day. I, you know, I would, I would you know, look, look at women differently. I date differently. I would, you know, my, you know, I, I always, I think I put it in the book it this way, you know, my greatest pleasure in my life was watching women get exploited on camera, which is never a healthy place to be in. And I think that's, you know, I, and I had to really, really look at that and be honest with myself about that. And it wasn't a very easy conversation to have with myself, but I think, you know, to your point, in terms of my value hierarchy at that point, I don't think how you could say if it's not the top thing I valued, it's one of the most top things I valued because I couldn't yeah. stop doing it. I formulated my life all around it. So so here's my question. So you you were getting massive dopamine hits from watching porn. It was clearly very valuable to you. And so you decided yeah. at some stage, you decided that was no longer valuable to you and you had to sacrifice that um, and you had to stop doing it and you had to bring other things in instead. The issue yeah. is how did you do that? I think that that's a really good question. And I think there might be different answers to this, but for me, in terms of the stuff that I was doing and I, I got, I think I was, I was talking to my parents about this because obviously when you, when your parents stumble upon a very detailed description about how you had a sex addiction, that's not the most comfortable conversation to have with, with your parents about it. But um, they basically said, you know, they were kind of saying like, you know, we had no idea, like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, Guys, I actually, I think I got kind of lucky with what I was addicted to, because if you can, if you look in the yeah. background, I, I, I like bourbon, I like whiskey, yeah. and I knew, I know a lot of alcoholics and functioning alcoholics in my life. And I knew that, you know, I can have this on my shelf and be totally fine. But if that was in an alcoholic's room or in their living room, right as they walked in the door, that'd be a significant issue for them. And I know that, you know, no matter how bad my porn addiction was, and it got pretty bad for a while. It's not going to kill me at the end of the day, like alcohol will, or like cigarettes will, or like drugs will, or like everything else. And so for me, that point came when I, you know, because porn is a drug, in my opinion, it has all yeah. the characteristics of, of a drug. And I don't know the specific, I would say scientific data behind what classifies a drug and what doesn't. I've heard varying things about the subject, but What's what I- Addiction. Yeah, yeah. So what, so what I noticed with myself was when I got into porn starting at around like 10 years old, and I, I was addicted to it till I was- and I'm still addicted to it now. I just don't watch anymore. I just have chosen to kind of pivot my life away from it. But for you. Yeah. well, th thank you. And I got to a point where I, you know, the, they're just as people that, you know, start out maybe smoking weed or doing a little bit of stuff on the weekends. If they don't stop, they need a higher dopamine hits. So they go to harder stuff and they go to harder stuff. And the next thing you know, they're shooting heroin at a gas station with somebody they hardly know. And so with me, what I experienced is that the stuff that I got into with porn didn't satisfy me anymore. So I got into harder, harder stuff and variants of porn that was at the end of the day i remember putting in my book specifically and i remember specific examples in my life where i would be done watching it and i'd be just so disgusted with who i was as a person for watching that and, you know again watching women get exploited on camera in so many vicious awful ways and it was just i remember i was just you know i didn't i didn't like myself i hated myself after watching that kind of stuff my self-esteem was so low that i'm like okay, this, this needs to stop. Like you're destroying your brain by doing this and you're, you're, you're kind of converting and, you know, perverting the rest of your brain. So it got to a point where I was so self-loathing and self, you know, so disgusted with myself that I basically said that I need to make a change or this is going to continue being negative and perpetuity to me for the rest of my life. Yeah. So basically you stopped. Yeah, you took a decision and you stopped and you stayed stopped because actually the the secret to addiction is that, and I mean that's it's tough, isn't it? You can't do that with alcohol, you can't do it with yeah. drugs, but you can do it with porn, 
uh, you can do with certain sorts of foods and such like. Sure. But, yeah. but people don't understand that actually the 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 thing about porn addiction is that it is that central. Well, it's the point you're making about the value and the sacrifice, and and you feel terrible when you come down mm-hmm. from a porn addiction. Uh, but what you're saying is that sacrifice is worth it because you've actually redone your values. You see, I like it because I, I think I think what you've done is you created a way of doing like a like a self audit at a certain point of your life and going yeah. bang. Let's have a look at myself and think. I, I've actually just bought a copy on Kindle and um, I'll have a look at this because I might I might steal some of your well you've written them down so no, it's, got, no, yeah, it's not a, a question yeah. of stealing them isn't it it's a question of using them but I'm going to do some auditing work with some people and use this metaphor and and see if it's useful because I. I've never seen values linked to sacrifice in this sort of way. These words and and you know, so I like it. So, um, Sam, it, I'm very very um, um, sorry in a way to have, um, run out of time because uh, I need to be sensitive to your time because your publisher has to be jumping up and down, shouting and waving big sticks at us, and um, <laughs> we probably need to stop. Um, how do people find out more about you and more about your work? Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me, Russell. And I think, you know, the book is Value Economics, Study of Identity. You can buy it in hardcover, paperback, ebook on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, anywhere you buy it, basically buy books. I am uh, Sam LaCrosse, L-A capital C-R-O-S-S-E on LinkedIn. My Instagram is at RealSamLax, and that is spelled R-E-A-L-S-A-M-L-A-X. And then my content is hosted on DontReadThisBlog.com. And my podcast is Don't Listen to This Podcast on everything, Spotify, Apple, all where you listen to podcasts. It should be all there. So Brilliant. that's where you find me. And uh, thank you for having me again, Russell. I really appreciate it. No worries. It. No worries. And if you go onto the Amazon.com site, there's a fantastic one-star re- review. I love it. Um, yeah. You're going to get a one-star review, get a really terrible one. I mean, it's a shocker, isn't it? I mean, um, <laughs> I really it, enjoy yeah. that. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it, a, it, it's a person yeah. I'm sure you never end the book at. So, you know, um, you get you get the one stars from the, the wrong people in, your, in the audience and you can look at yourself and think, I'm pleased with that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, if, you know, my parents liked it and that was basically all I yeah. wanted to do was kind of make a good book that they liked. Yeah. And you know, I think honestly, that one star review on Amazon pretty much. It's good. No, anyway. I think, and it's good I think if you get one star reviews from people like that, you're doing well. I think so, too. So good. thank you. You're a superstar. It. I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, I just realized I should say goodbye. And and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Russell. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on. No worries. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.